Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. My name is Glenn Washington, and sometimes folk ask me, they say, Glenn, I thought you had a job. Now, what's all this radio show nonsense? Well, you know, they're right. I did used to have a job. I went to work every day, and sometimes, just like you, when I was listening to the radio, I would scream and shout, what the hell is this? I might like to put a cap in that radio, lest we get the good stuff. You know, because us public radio people, we're kind of gangster like that. Well, I heard about this contest. They said, if you think you can make a radio show, send in your two-minute clip right on. That's exactly what I did. And just like most things that I do, I forgot about it. Until about three months later, when the phone rang, I'm sitting there, minding my own business, eating some Chinese food, and the phone rings. Hey, you're one of ten finalists in the public radio talent quest. I was like, Mark, Mark. It is not funny to toy with my emotions. Well, it wasn't even Mark. I had just joined the American Idol of public radio, and every week we had to do something crazy. Read a script, write a script, jump, hop, skip, kneel. Kneel, they made us kneel. And to make a long story short, storytelling with a beat was born. We broke in. Now, today on Snap Judgment, we've got tales about how people broke in, got over, pulled back the curtain, stuck their foot in the door, and got everything they ever wanted. Or at least, everything they thought they wanted. Breaking in. When you go ahead and take that last dirty, dirty step to a whole nother land of unexpected treasures, that's breaking in, my friends, and that is what today's show is all about. Now, sometimes the first step is the easiest. That's how it was with Jillian. And fair warning to sensitive listeners, the next artist do mention sex and drugs. When we walked into the Ritz that day, I was queasy and exhausted. I had spent the previous evening at the St. Regis with an aging Italian art dealer who liked to talk about enemas while Taylor and I made out. Taylor was my only real friend. She was the one person I had sort of standing on the side of the wall between me and the rest of polite society who was not having sex for money. Taylor and I walked into the lobby of the Ritz the way we always did. Confident, conservative, purposeful. I had perfected the art of not looking anyone in the eye as we walked toward the elevators. It could trip me up sometimes how people looked at me, always so impressed with their own street smarts because they had spotted the hooker in the fancy hotel. She said, come with me to this audition. A friend of mine from L.A. is in town, and she's auditioning people to go and entertain these rich businessmen in Singapore, to go to their parties and hostess, and you'll get $20,000 for two weeks of work. I wasn't scared to go to the audition, although when you work for an escort agency, there are certain protections. What if they peddle us to some third-world brothel, I asked in the elevator. You're always so negative. (laughs) And we go to this room, and there were six or seven (laughs) women. I looked around, and I clocked the other women, and I figured there were one or two duds that I wasn't worried about. There were one or two that looked like stiff competition. And then there was this one anomaly, and she had these crazy long acrylic nails, and I did not think she was the competition at all. I thought there was no way, because she was so trashy. We went around and introduced ourselves, and she said her name was Destiny. It's on my license. I wasn't sure if I wanted the job because it seemed kind of sketchy, but my competitive spirit really kicked in. I wanted to get it. I wasn't sure if I wanted to accept it, but I wanted to get it. So we went in and this woman, she looked so wholesome, introduced herself. She did not look much older than me. And and she started to interview us. Have you traveled at all outside the country? 
And I thought I should leave out, you know, my family trip to Israel. Instead, I said, you know, that I had been to the Cayman Islands and that I was saving my money to go to Paris. And I was. All I wanted in life was, well, yes, I wanted to be a famous actress, but other than that, uh, I wanted to go to Paris. Wow, this seems so wholesome, like we're being interviewed for the Peace Corps or something. And then they were like, oh, and go in the next room and let that guy take your pictures in your underwear. Oh, yeah, that's great. And he said, oh, and and here's my card for later in case you want headshots at a good rate. Perfect. That's the shot. I figured nothing was going to come of it. I thought, oh, it's just another afternoon in another hotel room in my underwear. And then she called me a week later telling me that I had been selected, along with destiny. Destiny of the fingerless gloves, not Taylor. Ari went on to explain that she didn't work for a Singaporean businessman at all. The parties I was to be attending would be thrown by Prince Jeffrey, the youngest brother of the Sultan of Brunei. And I would be his personal guest. To which I responded, where? (laughs) I had never even heard of Brunei. So I went to the library. I think that one of the books that I read was called The Richest Man in the World, The Sultan of Brunei. And, uh, and he was. At that time, he was the richest man in the world. He had $40 billion. And Prince Jeffrey was his youngest brother. I knew that there was a chance that I, you know, the plane would land and I'd wind up chained to a bare mattress somewhere addicted to heroin. But I had an intuitive feeling. And the next day, I flew to Brunei. I realized only later the full import of the fact that, you know, we were the clandestine guests of a foreign government. They took us to a a palace. It was a walled compound that looked like a resort in Fort Lauderdale as imagined by Aladdin, is what I thought. One of the other girls turned to me and she said, it's all real, you know. And I said, it's real what? And she said, it's real. It's all real. Like the gold in the carpet is real gold. Those rubies are real rubies. You know, the, they were the size of tennis balls in these tiger's mouths. And I looked and I saw what looked like a Picasso painting across the foyer. And I thought, wow, I, I bet that that's real too. And we got ready for the party. I had dressed in my best vintage ensemble and decorated my eyes with thick strokes of liquid liner. Party is about 40 or so beautiful women from all over the world, and they're hanging out singing karaoke. And all the girls would dance. The men wouldn't dance. The girls would dance together. So I, I, I'm there at the party, and the prince arrives. And he showed up at the parties every night wearing clothes that he played squash in. You know, he was very informal, and all the rest of the women were in evening gowns. And he was very charismatic. He had a a charisma that just swept into the room before he even entered. He was a little short, but (laughs) handsome. And uh, and I sang his favorite song. I, I learned a song in Malay overnight. Kasi Dengarla As I passed the prince and bowed on my way back to my seat, he reached out and grabbed my arm. He took my hand between both of his, dry and soft and perfectly manicured, and said, beautiful. Then he let go. This crumb of approval should have meant nothing to me, but I must have been brainwashed because one Midas touch from the prince and I glowed all night. He was charmed somehow, and 
and he took an interest in me, and uh, and after that, I, I became his mistress, and uh, and I stayed. We definitely had the electricity at first, but it was a situation that really wore on me. All the money in the world didn't make the prince happy. He was a fairly miserable guy. He didn't want for gold bathroom fixtures. He didn't want for yachts or airplanes or women or Maseratis. And he still couldn't figure out how to get a good night's sleep or how to have a real friend that he trusted. The prince didn't send me home. I, I chose to go home. I got out of there because it was not making me happy. I was done, he was done, we were sick of each other. It was just time. People often ask me what was my best moment in Brunei. You know, my best moment in Brunei happened before anything happened, when it was just all hope. I woke up at like four in the morning. I was so jet lagged and I walked out onto the balcony, the light and Southeast Asia is just incredible at dawn and at dusk. It's like this deep blue, purple. There were still a few stars out, and I imagined that I had this whole ocean of possibilities in front of me and, uh, and that I was exactly where I had been waiting to be for so long. Jillian Lauren has a book out about her time in Brunei called Some Girls, My Life in a Harem. She now lives in L.A. with her husband and son, and we'll have a link on our site. Now, sometimes you fall into fate by a delicious accident, and sometimes... You just really need the job. If you ever do decide to inflate your resume before the big interview, think really hard about the skills you supposedly possess. So I was interviewing at a specialty electronic repair store in Akron, Ohio. It was called the Battery Hunt. They had a hilarious logo. It was like a humanoid battery, and it, like, it looked like this insane battery. They made most of their money in custom batteries. And I knew the assistant manager, and she recommended me, so the job's kind of in the bag. I know nothing about batteries. I'm just lying throughout the whole job interview. And because the job's so much in the bag, and he seems to be impressed with me, he starts showing me the inventory, and at one point he pulls out this drawer of boxy unmarked batteries, and they all look like 9 volts. And me and my brothers, when we were growing up, we would always lick 9 volt batteries, and it just feels like little droplets of rain are sort of dancing on your tongue. And he asked me, like, how would you describe your level of battery knowledge? And I go, expert or above. And then I pick one up and I ask him, have you ever done this? And I just lick it. <laughs> Turns out each and every one of these is like a 20 volt or higher garage door opener custom battery. And it shocks me. I collapse full on. It was sort of like at full speed, you walk into a low ceiling and it, you're half in pain, but also just half so confused by why you're on the ground all of a sudden. The store was in a mall kiosk. <laughs> There was a customer waiting to have his watch battery who just ran away <laughs> when I <laughs> licked it and fell down to the ground. And I always imagined that he ran off just thinking he saw me die. And from a distance, it almost looked like I had just eaten the world's hottest slice of pizza because my tongue's sticking out and I'm fanning air onto it. it. It felt like almost like a wasp stinging directly in the middle of my tongue. And I finally sort of regained my composure and we locked eyes and that's when we both realized that I had been completely lying <laughs> about all of my battery knowledge. I got a call from the friend who recommended me the next day and she was livid. <laughs> She's like, I told them you were the smartest person I know, but I look like I hang out with morons. 
I've learned whenever something doesn't look mass-produced that is normally mass-produced, don't just stick it in your mouth. <laughs> you know? But I think the most amazing thing about it is I, I got the job. What? Yeah, I got the job. What I found out is he just hate, he wasn't the owner, the manager, you know, he just worked there. And uh, he just hated his job so much. And everyone he was interviewing was incompetent. So he figured he may kill himself here, but it will at least be interesting. Sean Flannery is a comic based out of Chicago. He has a one-man show called Never Been to Paris. You're listening to Snap Judgment, and today we're breaking into places we ain't supposed to be. Stay tuned. Listening to Snap Judgment, the show that takes other shows out back and steals their lunch money. Today, we're breaking into stuff, and do I have a story for you? What's the hardest boys' club of all to break into? Politics? Athletics? The Brotherhood of the Surgeon? <laughs> Aaron Neff comes correct with the answer. My sister had previously worked on fishing boats, so I thought if she could do it, I could do it. It sounded like a great adventure. Go to Alaska for a summer and work. So I contacted the company she worked for, and I got a job. And they sent me to Kodiak, where I had to wait a couple days for the boat to come in. And this little hotel, the Shelikoff, was filled with fishermen <laughs> drinking 24 hours a day because there's no nighttime. So here I was, 25, pretty cute and very innocent looking, and thinking I was, you know, quite the stuff for having this adventure, and all, suddenly all alone in this funny situation. So anyway, the boat comes in, and we set out to sea, and they give me all my gear, and they show me my accommodations, and I'm in a tiny, tiny little room with a little bunk and a little bathroom. So we are heading out to open fishing waters, and I'm not going to sit in my safe little room that's just for women, all alone. I'm going to go out and I'm going to mix, you know, and I'm going to meet these guys, I'm going to meet these fishermen. Off to the galley is a little TV room. So it's kind of like a little zoo, or a little strange box of animals. And I'm going, oh, okay, this is kind of funny. You know, you go and just squeeze yourself into a nook. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to watch TV with the guys. And I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing a really cute pair of tight white pants and these cute boots, just looking cute <laughs> and like, hey, guys. And I squeeze into this little nook and, you know, get comfortable. And I realize they're watching porn. <laughs> and, you know, I sit there and sort of sink into myself, horrified. Mm, what have I got myself into? So there's different tasks you have in the fishing boat. And they go from the most ordinary to very, very macho. And you are working. I mean, labor. It's crazy. And there was the heading station where you just cut fish heads off all day. So you'd have a saw blade and boot, 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 over and over. Then it would go to the gutting stations. It's ghastly. It is so horrible. I was so sick. The mornings were difficult. So then the gutted fish would go down to that packing station where you would put it into the pans. 
and you would open this little door, just like, you know, six inches, and tons and tons of fish would come through, and you'd have to sort them. Black cod, and rexole, and thorny head. The sorter would have these gaffer hooks, essentially a stick with a hook on the end, and you would hook the fish and throw it over your shoulder into the bin where that's where all the black cod went. But that was a pretty good job too, if you could take it. The easiest thing you could do was put fish in these pans. Imagine an oversized cake pan, aluminum, and you had to fill it exactly with 20 pounds of fish. So at first, you know, you're not so good at it, but after a while you can eyeball it. And then the most macho, hotshot job was the breaking station. Essentially, all these pans that had been frozen, they would get unloaded onto the cart. And this cart would run on this little rail and it'd come down to the breaking station and there were 200 pans. They weighed 20 pounds. And the job is to get that frozen block of fish out of the pan. I don't know if you remember old school aluminum ice cube trays and how hard it is sometimes to get that ice cube out, right? You just whack it and it's still in there. You know, eventually you have to put it in water and then maybe it would come out. Imagine that, but in a 20 pound pan and you've got to get it out of there. Maybe my first few weeks, I just did the other jobs, but I watched and I watched that breaking station and I really wanted to do that job. I wanted to show these guys that I could do this job. In the factory was this really interesting culture, culture of men that was fascinating to me. I'd always been a tomboy and I always really kind of wanted to be in that club of boys. You know, I wanted to play football with them and I wanted to go and, you know, roam the streets and do that kind of thing. So this was fun for me in a very bizarre way. What I learned out there is that men are constantly trying to sort of posture yourself as the most powerful in the tribe. And they would do this funny thing, gesture to each other, which was they would get behind their workmate and they would do this humping move behind their coworker. And some people thought this was funny and some people would get very angry, right? They didn't like that. And this was very strange. It was a strange game to me. Back to the breaking station. I eventually got them to let me try to do a few of these pans. And I think the first time I did four, I almost died. Yeah, I just couldn't get them out of the pan. And then I eventually kind of learned a technique and then I got up to 20 and then I got up to 25. I worked at this job for 89 days. And this maybe was my 40th try. I'm doing it. I'm going through these 200 pans without stopping. On this day, I got to 40 and I'm breathing hard, but my heart feels good and I feel strong and I keep going. And I'm getting towards the end and I'm moving a lot slower, but I'm still moving. There was a bit of more of a crowd. It was, I think, a source of amusement for all these guys chuckling to sit around and watch me red-faced. But as I got closer, they were really started cheering me on. And it was painful. Your hands are cramping and your forearms are cramping and your back because you're bending over. So your back is, is working, your legs are working anaerobically. So I'm getting down to the last, the last stack. There's maybe 15 and I'm getting it. I can feel it. This is it. And I get to that last pan. Absolute perfect technique. And I do it. I break it out. And you just hit it so and it's very sweet when it pops out. It's just perfect. There's something absolutely perfect about the world when it comes out. And that last fish cube came out of that pan and it was one of those slow-mo moments where people are around you and, and they're patting you on the back and they're saying, yes, Aaron, and even the Polish guys who never even spoke to me at all were like, yes, clapping. And, and he's, yeah, yeah, Aaron, wonderful. And then one guy came up behind me and he did that little fake humping. That thing that only the guys do to each other. And I'm overjoyed at that moment. And I was so happy because I was like, oh my God, I'm in. I'm in that club. I made it. <laughs> All right, Aaron, welcome to the Boys Club. What if you really had to go undercover? What if you're a reporter whose job, whose story depended upon everyone thinking you were someone you weren't? What if? If you're gay, but you're very religious and you don't want to be gay anymore, some people say that there's a way to curb your same-sex attraction. And that way, 
is to be held. We would pick one of the three holds. We were sitting either side by side with the counselor putting his arm around us. These holding exercises or touch therapies are meant to give men positive, non-sexual, intimate contact with other men so they don't seek out male contact in the, quote, unhealthy sexual contexts. There was another hold called the Cohen hold, the counselor sitting on the ground with his legs spread open, and then we would sit between his legs, and he would kind of cradle us the way a, a, a parent would cradle their child. And the third hold was called the motorcycle. You could imagine two people riding a motorcycle, the person behind them with their arms and legs kind of around the person in front. Um, I picked the motorcycle position because I figured if I'm here, I might as well go all the way. And that's when, for the first time in his life, this straight reporter, Ted Cox, felt an erection in the small of his back. My name is Ted Cox, and I'm a writer from Sacramento. I went undercover in ex-gay programs, which are religious programs designed to make gay people straight. The program that I attended is called Journey into Manhood. It's a 48-hour retreat. There were 50 men in this room sitting on the floor, and most of the lights were out, and we are listening to this new agey song about how could anyone tell you that you're anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? And the counselor would be holding us, and the other men in our small groups would put their hands on our arms or our chest or our legs, imparting their masculine healing energy to us as well. And the counselor was whispering in our ears about how we were the golden child long ago and how we used to be healthy and happy and everything was great until we were wounded. Uh, Somebody hurt us and we put up these emotional walls to protect ourselves, but it was now time for those walls to come down. And then after the counselor said that, the entire room broke out into song and we uh, sang the chorus of this this song together. After we did that, it was time for the next man to kind of rotate so we all got the chance to be held by the counselors in the room. The idea is simple. The idea is is that through faith, through scripture, through um, psychotherapy, somebody can basically correct their orientation. Well, correct is not the word that either Ted or I would use. And become straight or at least become less attracted to people of the same sex. Ted Cox is an ex-Mormon, a very ex-Mormon, now an atheist. And when he was going through the touch therapies at the Journey into Manhood retreat, he had been undercover in the so-called ex-gay movement for over a year. He had attended weekly support group meetings and weekend conferences geared towards Christian men and women desperately trying to overcome their same-sex attractions. To be clear, he went into this as a supporter of gay rights and marriage equality for gays and lesbians. He went into this with an agenda. I went in thinking that it would be this big expose, digging up the dirt on these programs and what they entail. And while that certainly did happen, and I found a lot of things that are disturbing and that are quite sensational, um, I also learned the stories of the men and women in these programs. But before he could learn about these stories of sadness and struggle and fear and self-loathing, he had to get in the door. And to do that, he had to lie. I didn't feel good about lying. Um, I thought I could just go and pretend and I wouldn't get emotionally connected to the men in these programs. At first, the deception was pretty simple. I had to answer some questions online about why I'm going and what my struggle is and what I hope to accomplish from the camp. But Ted was careful to only make up the part about being attracted to men. The rest of the story about his Mormon upbringing and stuff that happened to him when he was a kid, that was all true. And this wasn't just so he could remember it and keep his story consistent. The men in these programs are very open about themselves and they do share a lot of personal things. And so I wanted to know what it was like to share those kinds of personal things. I wanted to get as much of a real experience as possible. The so-called therapy at this ex-gay camp centers around one idea. It's this idea that homosexuality is a symptom of some deeper emotional issue. It is the negative cumulative effect of psychological wounds. 
So they believe that if you can fix these psychological wounds, that the homosexuality, the same-sex attraction, will just disappear. So they help us address these emotional wounds through different types of exercises. You already heard about one type of exercise, the touch therapy, but there are other less nurturing varieties. In one exercise, we are supposed to share some tragic memory from our childhood or from our past. For one man, he talked about the time he, his dad had um, kind of rejected him because he was, he was reading the newspaper. So the son goes up to his dad and he says, Dad, I want to play with you. I'd, I'd like to spend time with you. And dad says, no, not now. I'm reading the paper. And the counselor tells this man, this journeyer, well, you took home the message that your dad doesn't love you and that he doesn't have time for you. And we need to get rid of this old dad. We need to get rid of this old message that your dad is giving you. So the counselor gave the journeyer a baseball bat and he gave him a punching bag. And he says, all right, you need to get rid of your old father. Just swing away. Basically, the guy is beating his dad to death in effigy. After many swings, the, uh, the old counselor is lying on the floor, crumpled on the ground. You know, old dad is dead. And there's another man standing behind the old father. And he represents the new father, this perfect golden father. And he says, son, I love you. I have time for you. I care about you. I think it's possible to hear these stories about the extreme exercises and the role playing and ridicule the whole thing and everyone involved. But Ted felt nothing but sympathy for the journeyers. My heart ached for them for the struggles that they were going through. I wanted to to take them and say, hey, guys, it's okay. It's okay to be who you are. You don't need to fight this. But Ted's feelings for the counselors is a bit more complicated. I felt a lot of anger, but also sympathy for them because the men there, the men who lead escape programs, they are also victims to this idea that there's something wrong with their orientation. So kind of everybody there is... A victim. Some of them are the victim becomes the victimizer as well. The end of the journey into manhood weekend isn't the end of the story. Ted secretly wrote about his experience, changed all the names, and even though the group had exchanged numbers and were encouraged to support each other after the retreat was finished, he was able to avoid contact with most of the journeyers he had been with that weekend. I felt like I had intruded enough into their lives and I didn't want to continue on with that. But one guy, who Ted called Dave in his article, kept calling and calling. Finally, I told him, Dave, I, I have something to tell you, and you're not going to like it. So Ted had to come out straight to Dave. He was very upset, and rightfully so. I explained to him that I'm on his side, that I'm doing this project so that he wouldn't have to go through programs like this, so that people would be more accepting of him, so that his spiritual leaders wouldn't condemn him. He was upset because he had shared a lot of personal information, and he wondered why I didn't just stand off to the edges and just be an observer. Why did I participate? Why did I go through all of the exercises? We've had lunch a couple of times since then and talked about his life and what he's doing and stuff. And I think I can say we're friends now. I'm comfortable in saying that. It's interesting is that he talked to me about this idea of choice. What's the problem with his choosing to overcome same-sex attraction? Why is it a problem if he decides that he would be happier married and with children as opposed to pursuing a relationship with another man? Isn't that his choice and doesn't he get to uh, make that decision and he's right people have the right to self-determination to choose which path they want to take um, religious or or otherwise so it's certainly not up to me to tell him how he should be or how he would be happiest like anybody he has the right to choose who he is and what he does piece was produced by our own Roman Mars. Ted Cox is writing a book about his undercover experiences in the ex-gay movement. Now publishers, publishers, listen close. Ted Cox hopes to find a publisher soon. Whoa! That's all I'm saying.
Now, there is no better way to break into the Snap Judgment family, the Snap Judgment community, than to hit us up on the Facebook or the Twitter. Snap Judgment. Go on the site. Find all kinds of goodness. We got movies. We got little short films. We've got shows. Judge other people's stories. Let them judge you. Go ahead and share and bear your soul. Snapjudgment.org. We love you. Today's episode, Breaking In. We'll be right back. listening to Snap Judgment, the show about the decisions people make that change everything. And now, you might not imagine this, but Snap Judgment's own Rebecca Hertz was a star student with a bright future. She had but one more obstacle, barring her from that glorious Ivy League future. I want to let her tell us about it. My junior year in high school, I was a militant feminist. I was a riot girl. Suck my left one! It was the early 90s. I wanted to get away from all men, and I wanted to get as far away from home as I possibly could. I wanted to go to Barnard, the Women's College of Columbia University in New York City. Getting into that school was going to be my ticket out. My grades were great, and I knew I had to keep them that way. So I took chemistry my junior year. I was getting straight A's. It was an arts high school. So for the final, the chem teacher, Mr. Hutchinson, decided to do something creative. Instead of a final, everybody had to write a 10-page paper and give an oral report on something scientific. Society's problem with something. Anything. Now, I had spent the year reading the seminal texts of early feminism, and I had just finished reading Alice Walker's book, Possessing the Secret of Joy, which is a novel about female genital mutilation in Africa. And I knew a lot of girls and boys in school who were sexually active but didn't know what a clitoris was. I knew what my report would be. Everybody else's reports sucked. I got up in front of the class and announced my report. Society's problem with the vagina. Vagina, vagina. I had done a ton of research. I explained modern gynecology and obstetrics, episiotomies, how in some traditions women were required to hold up a bloody sheet on the wedding night, and if they didn't bleed, well, they were killed. Also, the girls and boys in the class finally learned what and where was the clitoris. They all loved it, but not Mr. Hutchinson. He never looked up at me, not even once. The next week, he told me he was going to fail me. I hadn't gotten permission to do a report on that subject, so he was within his rights. An F? I'd never gotten an F before. It was so unfair. This teacher had the power to destroy my dreams of escaping to college. My life was ruined. 
We were walking across campus to chem lab, and all the kids in my class spontaneously confronted Mr. Hutchinson. You can't fail her. She gave the best report by far. It was so well-researched. It was engaging. Hello, we actually learned something. We'll go to the principal. So I got an A minus. And after writing 10 drafts of a normal, boring college application essay, I ended up telling this story instead. And that's how I got into college, the hard way. The next year, someone did a report on the penis. Oh, poor Mr. Hutchinson. So uncomfortable. Up next, we've got a story about two men who are trying to break into the world of celebrity. Or really, one man and one donut. Zach Slow and his friend Jelly Donut, a rapper in a giant donut costume, embarked on a project to get close to Lady Sovereign. Lady Sovereign. Chart-topping female rapper from the UK. This piece was produced by Nick Vanderkolk for his amazing podcast, Love and Radio. Yo, the first on the battle chat, yeah, run that. The Lady Sovereign story? The Lady Sovereign story. And I was at a show of hers in uh, Southern California, and uh, I was watching her perform, and I'd had what I called this $10,000 idea. Zach was like, I think I have a new crush, you know? And, and, and that's, where, that's where the seed was planted, and he was just like, it would be so so fun to go out with her and to see if I could get other people to pay for us to go out together. She was playing in, in San Francisco in a month. So how about I have one month starting today to, to make a website and to get all this public interest. He, he thought it'd be funny to have a couple videos on there to get it going virally. And Joey Donut had to jump in and say something about it. If you haven't seen what this donut looks like, it's basically, it's a, it's a person inside of this huge circular cushion and there's a there's a hole for his head kick it jelly d (laughs) yeah the jelly donut what come on come on come on now in the uk do you say jelly donut the same you call cookies biscuits so what's my name use the d to the o to the n u but forget the bakery how about the date with me the second day i'm sitting at work and someone emails me and goes do you realize you're on the front page of yahoo right now that's crazy. Yeah, I have no idea how it got there, but when you're on the front page of Yahoo, millions of people are going to instantly know about your, about your idea. It was on CNN, I was on the BBC, it was on USA Today, it was on MTV, VH1. That was crazy. The next day, her management got in touch with me and said, um, what's your story? They basically said, okay, well, if you can get $10,000 um, by the day of her show, then she'll agree to go out with you if get a room at a five-star hotel, you rent a private yacht, um, first class first class tickets, and it was all these like really catty requests basically, and requests that I don't think they thought were gonna be, a, were gonna be met. And then after that, I was like, let's do this, you know? You know, I got thousands of emails. One of them says, seriously, get a life. <laughs> there are a lot more important things in the world that money should be donated to instead of partnering with a musician. You're what's wrong with America. And then there was also people saying, everyone's always wanted to go out with, one of their, with a celebrity, and you're actually trying, and I, and I applaud that. Slowly every day, I just got more, more and more money. I ride the bus to work every day in San Francisco, which has this massive homeless population. The day before I'm supposed to go on this date, you know, I have like $9,000 of strangers' money in a bank account. Wow, this is intense, like... Literally, two hours before the show, I was about $500 down. I got a call from this businesswoman in Santa Barbara, and she said, 
I own a company. If you spend an hour with me to help me brainstorm some viral marketing ideas for my company, I'll give you whatever money you're short. And I was like, deal. Went to the show with a couple of my good friends, Jelly Donut and, and a bunch of other people. Her show was really good. And then next thing I know, they're basically like, all right, well, let's go to a tour bus. You know, date starts now. I mean, I think that she was probably way more freaked out than I was. She started the night by offering me a Pabst, which which was hysterical because I just, that's what I normally drink. And I was kind of like, you know, we have 10 grand right now. Why? We're not drinking Pabst tonight. We can drink Pabst any night. You know, tonight, <laughs> tonight, no more Pabst. It's me, her, it's your lady Jelly Donut, the, jelly donut what? the good friend of hers and her manager. So we just start partying our faces off in this in this limo. We then um, partied on this like beautiful, huge yacht and rode around the bay for for about four hours. I mean, we legitimately we just got hammered. We kind of like drunkenly commandeered the the boat from the captain. You know, we were actually steering the yacht for a while. And all of a sudden, you know, she kind of had this like teary eyed moment with me being like, you know, this is crazy. Like I'm now going underneath the Golden Gate Bridge on a yacht and never in my life did I think that was going to happen. She grew up in a sketchy part of Britain, pretty broke. You know, as freaked out as she was at first, she was like, never in my life has anyone put so much thought or effort into like one, into, into anything for me. After that, um, we went back to, we rented this huge suite and like one of the nicest suites in San Francisco and, um, and just partied till basically the morning. So then uh, a few months go by, right? Right. So, you know, we were just kind of glowing for a little while. We were like, that was fun. But all of a sudden, I read this random interview from her, basically dissing my good friend, Jelly Donut. It's like in Spin Magazine, she was she was calling us creepy. And then she says that my grandma paid for the date. We had really good intentions going in. It was like, there was nothing sexual about it. There was nothing, you know. It was just like, let's party on a boat. So I emailed her manager and her, and I was I was basically like, I know that you guys had fun. We've, we've all talked about how fun we've had, and like, you have a lot of power to be able to bash me in the media. And like, you know, obviously I have zero power. You know, don't bash me in the media. And she wrote back to me, she goes, oh, you need to learn to take a joke. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I'll learn to take a joke. I keep reading in the media her dissing Andrew, the rapping donut. And, you know, she basically called him a crappy MC and he can't freestyle. She basically just dissed him. And at that point, I was like, okay, if I need to learn to take a joke, then then you can learn to take a joke too. She was coming back to San Francisco in like three months. Andrew and I sat down and I, and I basically was like, you know, what if... You should go to that show as the donut. So we snuck in Jelly Donut to her own show. Sneaking in Jelly Donut is like sneaking in a couch. We put a bunch of posters on the donut. So I like waltzed in the door of this big club with the donut. And once they realized there were no guns in it. We handed out like these little flyers of donuts. We started our chant right on time and it went through her entire fifth song. The crowd starts yelling, you know, to battle Jelly Donut. Just repeating like, battle Jelly Donut. Just over and over. By the end of the set, you can't even hear her anymore. We had people lift him up into the crowd, and the spotlight lit him up. She freaked out, and that's when she threw the drink on me, and she spit on me. She threw down the mic at the end of the song and tried to charge him, and like security kind of held her back a little bit. <laughs> and then they threw me out. It was great. <laughs> Lady Sovereign IMs me one day, and she's just so pissed off. She's like, I can't believe you came to my show and did that. And I go, oh, Lady Sovereign, I think you need to learn to take a joke. And, and in all honesty, right then, I think that's when she was like, oh, I see what's going on here. And, you know, we've IM'd a couple of times since and just kind of like checked in and said what's up. But it's just kind of like, it's just kind of whatever. Yeah, I mean, the beef is over. Yeah. Here we go, we grabbing a mic just to let you know Jelly Dough can flow. Sounds a little weak, but I won't stop. How many NPR listeners listen to hip hop? Uh, I give it out to the SOV. Got a little question, you still mad at me? 
I know we got off on the wrong foot when you came to visit. Now I want to take the foot and kick you with it. Just kidding, if you come to the bay, you can stay with me. I got a futon that's four foot three, so it should be just about your size. Um, and guess what else? You should realize that if you want to bring the beef with the grudge you're carrying, I'll bring the beef back even though I'm vegetarian. What? This piece was excerpted from Nick Vanderkolk's podcast, Love and Radio. We'll have a link to the whole thing on our site, snapjudgment.org. Now, it's about that time, but don't be sad, do not be sad. Stamp Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone, friends, never alone. Can I have a hand for the hardest working man in show business, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, the god of war and radio, and ham and cheese. They call him Roman Mars. Now, did reggaeton sunsplash ride into town without you knowing about it? Next time, you better get with the program. I suggest you hang with Rebecca Megahertz. Who are you? How do you do? She ain't passing through. It's Miss Stephanie Fu. Rita Daniels, just to keep things on an even keel. Don't need folks jumping out of windows up in here. The Snappinator. Half man, half machine, Will Urbina. And now, just because you bought the first round of drinks, don't think the Corporation for Public Broadcasting owes you anything. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, we're inspired by Youth Speaks. Why? Because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org and PRX.org, the public radio exchange putting the public in public media. And even though this is not the news, in fact, you could find your father's old suit coat in the bottom of a basement in a pile, turn it into the Goodwill, then realize you really, really love that coat. Go back to the Goodwill, not find it, chase down whoever had it, take it from their backs, from their strip it right from their hides, put it on yourself, get arrested by the cops wearing your own father's clothes. All that could happen and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. This is NPR.